0: The opposite of a sinful relationship is not no relationship. I know it's a double negative, but the opposite of being sinful is not avoidance. The opposite of being sinful is not Amishism. You with me? The opposite of sinful is biblical, healthy relationship. Okay? So, don't be afraid of relationships. Don't be afraid of relationships. And campus pastors, don't be weird about relationships. You know what people from age 17 to 25 do? They get in relationships. And when you get in a relationship, it doesn't work out. You just move on. You're like, cool. And if the person you were in a relationship likes someone in your friend group, that's normal. Who are they supposed to like? Someone they don't know? I got some bad news on relationships for your generation. You want the bad news or the good news? Here's the bad news. You're wise to take the bad news first. The bad news is, let me ask this question: How many here? You're committed to only dating and/or getting married with eventually a born-again Christian. You're, you're okay, good, awesome, awesome. A lot of hands. Um, by the way, campus pastors, you look for the hands that don't go up. Those are the ones you should decide. <laughs> How many here say not only do they have to be born again, they have to be on fire? They don't want, I want them on fire. <laughs> not only born again, on fire. I want them using their gifts. I want them actually in the game. Use. Born again, on fire, using their gifts, and a solid relationship with the Holy Ghost. I want that. Okay, that's the bad news. Because the bad news is out of the 7 billion people on this planet, if you're only going to be born again, on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit, losing their gifts, people, the only people that are accessible for you to be married to are about, there's about 60 of them on the whole globe. There's not many. The percentage is very small. That's the bad news. You want the good news? They're all in this room tonight. They're all they're all in this room. All 60 of them are here. All right. Uh, put that first slide up. If you want to follow me on Twitter, or Instagram, it's at Kurt Harlow. At Kurt Harlow. Uh, if you wanna, some of you have asked me about my church. And if you want to see our church, basedonline.com, you can check out all the different campuses. I think Jason Kane, our brand new uh, campus pastor, preached this last weekend, so his sermon's on there. It's excellent. You'll see me on there like every other week on the Granite Bay site, and if you check on the other campuses, uh, I'm on there occasionally too. We have an internship program. I am a big believer of the CMIT program. Please do not in any way, uh, shape, or form consider the Thrive uh, internship program if you have any inclination to go into campus pastor. Uh, Campus ministry, I would my first exhortation for you would be to be discipled by the people that are discipling you now and go in the CMIT. If you're interested in church work, if you're interested in being a part of a church that's kind of a different thing, where we have uh, we don't have we, we we have a saying at Bayside, there's only one celebrity in Christianity. His name's Jesus. We have a very flat model of ministry. There's a lot of opportunities. We're not video-based campuses. We're into developing and empowering communicators and leaders. If you're interested in any of that, you take that out of Strive School. Uh, dot info. And then we have a podcast, because nowadays you cannot pastor a church without a podcast. Back when Mario and I got saved, you get saved, and they would baptize you and hand you an acoustic guitar, and if you didn't have, learn the acoustic guitar in a week, you were not really saved. Nowadays, you can't pastor unless you have a podcast, and all that to say, the podcast, all it does is it, like, like you guys like the context stuff and the history stuff and the language? The, that's all the podcast is, it's all the kind of uh, in-depth stuff in the passages we preach week in and week out on Bayside, that um, it's all the material we didn't have time to cover that's really super interesting. All right, let's go ahead and get into the Word of God. We're in uh, John chapter 5, and uh, 1 through 18, one of my favorite passages, a lesser preached passage, a beautiful passage. Uh, I have mentioned before that I have, I have four kids, Jesse... Uh, Maddie, and Emma, then Dijon came to us when he was a freshman in high school, kind of spent the night one night and never left until he, until he moved out a couple of years ago. And I had to kick him out, because I was like, he's not gonna leave, he loves us too much. So we had a, a him and my son lived together, and so, so that's my family, Jesse, Dijon, Maddie, and Emma. Now, Jesse, Maddie, and Emma, they are five years apart and four years apart. And here's, here's just what I wanna get in your head. You don't know your future, quit worrying about it. You can be the greatest planner ever, you can have the greatest catastrophe ever, you don't know how that's going to work out. You don't know how it's going to work out. And um, so we got married, we wanted to have kids, we were poor, we were campus pastors, we spent a few years planting campus ministries, we said, let's have kids, and we couldn't have kids. So we went to the doctor and we said, doctor, why can't I have kids? Is it her fault or my fault? And he said, it's both your faults. And uh, we were both genetic losers. And, um, and so... So we went back and we said, okay, we can adopt for thousands of dollars or we can uh, do in vitro for thousands of dollars. We didn't have in, in, uh, money for adoption or for in vitro, so we tried the third method, which is called Pentecostalism. We prayed in tongues. And uh, <laughs> lo and behold, it worked. And we had Jesse. Jesse was born December 26th, um, about 27 years ago. And then um, for four years, we tried. We knew, used no birth control. And one night, my son said, I want a brother or a sister. And I said to him, well, if you're going to get a brother and sister, you're going to have to lay hands on your mom because we've all given up. And it was, I was kind of joking, but I kind of wasn't. And he marched right over and he said, Jesus, give my mommy a baby. And I always kid him, he should have said a brother because nine months later, literally nine months later, uh, uh, Madeline was born. And then she was born December 23rd. And, we, and we, she was induced because she was, gonna, she was scheduled to be born right on Jesse's birthday, And then, um, four years later, on just a total interruption and surprise attack, the most incredible, glorious thing happened to our family. We got pregnant. My wife is accepted into graduate school. She's about to go back to graduate school. Find out completely against all the odds that we are pregnant with our third child, Emma. She was born in January uh, 20th. So, all of our kids are within three weeks of each other. And we discovered that the doctor was wrong. We are not infertile, we are fertile. Every three weeks for a five year period, for just every half decade, we have a very narrow. Is that too honest, Jonathan? I don't care. I'm gonna, where's, where's Peter? I gotta press him now. You're done. Here's, no, I'm just joking. Uh, and so, the point I'm saying here is you don't know. You don't know. And I will tell you that when we had Emma, it was a huge financial problem and a crisis and a massive interruption, and the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Emma's just full of life. She's this incredible, full of life girl. She um, she has always been a swimmer. All my kids are swimmers. They're all water babies. And um, she she, we we took her to the uh, the public pool in Elk Grove, California when she was just five years old and we're at the public pool and it's all crowded and I don't like the public pool because I'm a little bit of a germ phobe and it was a really hot California day. The place is just packed. It's shoulder to shoulder, you know, and and I'm there and she says, Daddy, let's go off to high dive. And I thought I could argue with this strong-willed girl or I can make the lifeguard argue with her. And I said, Baby, you go ask the lifeguard if you're old enough to go off the high dive. And I was sure he would back me up. She goes over to the lifeguard, she says, Can I go off the high dive? And the lifeguard goes, If you could swim the length of the pool and back. And before he gets the sentence out of his mouth, boom, she jumps in the water. Touch the side comes up. Choo, choo, choo. Gets out. He's like, You're good for the high dive. She's like, Come on, Daddy! <laughs> now, I told you I was not afraid of spiders the other day, right? but I am a little afraid of heights. I'm not necessarily afraid of heights. I'm afraid of the extremely vivid imagination that I have whenever I'm high. Because when I look over, even on that elevator out there, I look over and say, oh, there's dead Kurt right there. (laughs) Knee going a different way. I, I, I see, is anyone else visual like that? People say stuff, I see it. So I was about to explain to her, baby, Daddy is not going off that high dive with you when the mother gives me this look like, son, if you would like to be with me at all in this marriage, you will go off the high dive with that child. So I start walking over the high dive. We get in a line for the high dive, gets up to our turn. She starts just going up like a spider monkey, just climbing up this high dive, man. And I get about halfway up the high dive, and I rethink my position on divorce and remarriage. I'm like, this is wrong. I don't know why I'm here. And I look back, and there's like this chubby 11 year old boy looking right out my trunks, you know? And he's, you can't go back at that point because you have to step on an 11 year old, and that's not a good witness. And um, we get to the top, and Emma just runs off the high dive, just poof, poof, in the water. No hesitation. She runs. The whole thing's shaking now. And she comes up. come on, daddy! Come on! Walk out. End of the high dive. God speaks to me. Isn't it so annoying about God? I'm in my devotions. Come on, Lord. What should I do? How should I? Where should I go? What's the strategy? You ever hear the deliberate silence of God? Just read the Bible some more. The answers are in there. I'm on the high dive, I'm not looking for God, I'm not listening to God, I don't want God to speak. He speaks to me so dramatically, he drops his thing in his spirit, my spirit, and he goes, hey, Kurt, how come your daughter is so confident and you're so filled with fear? I said, because she's an idiot, Lord, she's. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing at age five. Oh, none of the parents are laughing right now because they're like, yeah, they're idiots, they're totally idiots. You're like, that's so mean. No, no, you'll know. You'll get them around your life. They are brain damaged for most of their life. If you raise them right, you raise them out of the brain damage. I said, she's dumb. The Lord said, well, maybe, just maybe... She actually believes that she's got a loving, strong, powerful father right behind her and that no matter what risk she takes, that father is going to make sure it turns out all right. Maybe she's so confident because she actually believes in her father. This isn't about swimming, is it? (laughs) Here's my final thing I wanted to say to you, and I'm going to say it throughout this passage. The best stuff in life are the interruptions. The best stuff in life, you know, I was talking last night about the, the Walmart lady, Carol, that interrupted me. And I was talking about Andrew Rundle's little friend, Ellie, who interrupted me, and Andrew, who interrupted me. All of that stuff I almost missed. The best stuff in life is when Jesus interrupts. Who is Jesus? He's the interrupter. He's the one who knows exactly what should happen, and he's not disturbed by our plans. He has a plan, and if we are open to his plan, the greatest and most powerful transformations can happen in our life. Let's go ahead and go to the passage. Here's the context. We're gonna talk about the pool at Bethesda. Bethesda is a healing pool. Some of you know the Bethesda Hospital that's in the Near East. Most scholars, here's one of the context points, dismissed this pool as a literary device. They said this was a thing that was made up to try to bolster Jesus. It was all myth. And then in the 1890s, they found this pool. I've actually visited the pool. You can go to the pool to this day where this happened. And they know it's this pool because the colonnades that are described in the pool are particularly unique and they completely match the colonnades of the Bethesda pool that you can visit to this day. Now, here's the other thing you're going to notice. At some point, it's going to say that Jesus went in through the sheep gate. Now, what we won't know that everyone who's ever been to Jerusalem, and as a Jew knows, is that the sheep gate had one purpose. Is there anyone here who knows what the sheep gate's for? All, yeah, the sheep for what? For the sacrifice. Who said it? You get an A. All the sheep that were slaughtered in the temple, listen to me, will come in through the sheep gate. This is what's happening in this story, is Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and he chooses the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes into the city of peace through the sacrificial sheep gate. First one, if you're still with me, give me an amen. amen. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in New Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonies. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid said, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, what should the man have answered? Yeah, yeah, I want to get healed. It's not what he answers at all, is it? Now, here's the background. What they believed was that an angel would come and stir the water, and while the water was moving, the first person into the water would get healed. What is that called, by the way? Does anyone know what that's called? It's called superstition. And there's all sorts of superstition in the church of, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ to this day. You know how it's a superstition? Because to get God's grace, you have to do a work. And it's a competition. When you get people teaching you, here's exactly how you prophesy, and here's exactly how you get a word of knowledge, and here's exactly how you pray for people that are getting healings, they are preaching oftentimes, not really because they're horrible people or they've got bad motives, but because they're not discerning enough. They're preaching superstition. How does God heal people? Here's the right, correct theological answer. You ready for this? Any stinking way he wants. And it's okay to talk about the scenarios of which God does that. Some people confine God and say, God can only heal in these ways because these are the only things, the ways that God mentions of healing in the Bible. And other people are like, God does this incredible stuff, but first you gotta go to this prayer tent, and then you gotta do this, and you gotta ask people these questions, you gotta go on these prayer walks, and you gotta have these claws, and all this. My friends, it's none of, neither of those ends is true. He answers completely wrong. Based on superstition. Verse 8, this is what Jesus' response to his wrong answer is. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. This man gives Jesus a 100% loser excuse answer. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He obfuscates and says, I'm a victim. I'm a victim because I can't crawl down there. My works are not as good as the other people's works that get down there before me. And in response to his wrong headed, victimized answer, Jesus loves him, pours out his grace on him, demonstrates his power. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which he picked up, where he took his place, was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Okay, so here's the problem. On the Sabbath, you could walk, but you couldn't walk with your sleeping bag. That's one of the rules in the Talmud that I was talking about the other day. So it's like, hey, you can't be walking around with your sleeping bag. God hates you if you walk around with your sleeping bag. Verse 11. But he replied, my sleeping bag is from REI. It's a very nice one. No, I'm just, are you still with me? Okay, verse 11. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. But you know, if I laid hands on someone and they got this dramatically healed, I would actually put that on YouTube and ask for donations. That's not what Jesus does. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that there's a direct correlation between every hardship and sin. What he's saying is, let the grace of God compel you to holiness. Let the grace that's been shown you compel you to holiness. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that Jesus had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work. Always. You know what that word always means in the Greek? It means always. (laughs) And to this very day, and so am I working. For this reason, they, they tried all the more to kill him. Now... Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Here's John's theme again, that Jesus is God. Why master this material? This story, this passage, is for anyone who actually wants to be honest about the impact of your own attitude on God's miracles in your life. This question, do you want to be healed, It's not a question that keeps God from moving, but it's a question that He deeply desires you to answer honestly. It's such a profound and beautiful question. This question is recorded in eternal scripture because we need to put ourselves in the seat of the beggar, the cripple, and let Jesus ask us Do you really want to change? You want to get over your porn addiction? Do you really want to change? Do you want to get over your anxiety? Do you really want to change? Do you want to find the passion and zeal you know your life is meant to have? Do you want my healing? And the passage is also for anyone who wants to have lasting change. Back to the word that Jonathan had for us, I think it was on night 1, of not just coming and having experience. I've been to so many of these conferences, I no longer am at all worried about whether or not the sound goes well or how well the worship team does or even how well I preach. I've got one goal and one goal and one goal alone, and the goal I have is that 10 years from now someone would say to me, "I got changed and it stuck." And I've found that the sometimes I can preach incredibly good and that doesn't happen. Sometimes it's just okay and that does happen. And Probably the biggest factor is not just God's grace, but how you guys interact with each other after this conference. It has more to do with my mindset, my attitude. Some people change their mind, grab onto a truth, and even though that truth wasn't presented in the most slick and incredible and awesome way, and the lighting and the fog and the smoke and the band and the altar call wasn't perfect for them, the fact that they grabbed a hold of it caused the change to last. And sometimes the slickest, bestest thing ever got performed, and no one grabbed a hold of it. This passage is for those who want to be honest and want to really change. I've called uh, the three points I have for you, and I'm gonna go fast. Lame mindsets. Lame mindsets. Do you get it? Because the guy was lame, and then and then Jesus confronted his mindset. I don't care if you don't like it. It's brilliant. You want the three lame mindset? Here we go. Okay, here's the first one I can't change. Earlier, I told you that you can't change yourself, but that doesn't mean that you can't change. I told you that willpower is the lowest form of power. That's the power that this man is using. He's using the willpower to get into the pool to access the superstition. The thing is that those of us who have tried willpower and have eaten the cake over, you remember the cake? We've eaten the cake over and over again. Eventually, a cynicism builds in our heart, and we begin to believe that we are who we are we'll never be able to change. We'll never lose that weight. We'll never get the better grades. No one will ever love us. We'll never get that job. That was such a great testimony. And we people of faith even start to believe that our lot in life is settled. And there's good reason for us to believe that because it's hard to change. Change is difficult. Even if we know we should change, we find it hard to change. There's not a single heroin addict on the earth going, this is like vitamins, it's really good for me. They know it's bad. There's not a single cigarette smoker. Yeah, this helps me run marathons. They know it's bad for them. Okay, you guys aren't getting those illustrations. Let's bring it down to the right level. There's not a single person that's eating deep fried Chick-fil-A with a greasy Chick-fil-A sugar sauce on it going, yeah, my artery's not clogging at all. You know there are sometimes you're eating, it, you feel a pain in your left breast, you still. Give me a waffle fry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna unblock that with some waffle fries. Chocolate, shake it. What's the key idea here? I felt like I touched an idol there, Jonathan. Did you feel that? I touched an idol there. (laughs) Here's the key idea. Watch this. Are you taking notes? Sometimes we let our sickness become our significance. Sometimes we let our trial define who we are. See, there are only two things you want in life. You want significance and security. That's the only two things you want. What's significance? Who knows that I'm important? Who knows that I have some meaning in life? What security, will tomorrow be okay? And by the way, you know what the greatest marriages are built? They're built on people that build each other's security and significance. And the, by the way, you cannot get security and significance, you can't, you can't say I'm not gonna be about that stuff. You are wired for security and significance. The only question is whether you'll get it from a biblically healthy place. When you get security and significance from your talents, your major, your accolades, when you get it from your relationships with other people, what you find is those talents diminish and those accolades diminish and those other people are not faithful. They're sinful and failures just like you are. The only place to get your significance is from the grace of God in the body of Christ. I am significant because God has given me a position in his body. And the only place to get security is in forgiveness. So you get them from Jesus, you're fine. You get them from anywhere else. And what happens to people is they begin to get attention because of their trial. And therefore, they define themselves. And when Jesus comes to them and says, do you want to be well? They think, what will I do tomorrow if I'm well? And what if I'm well for a little while and then I'm not well again? This is monkeying with my identity. This is I might lose my friends if I were functional. Jesus is asking the man if he has let his disease define his future. So many of you, we're, we're, we're so overdiagnosed nowadays. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have ADHD. I'm sure I would have been diagnosed, I'd have been taken like giant. Huge, big gulps of, of Ritalin. They would have been just like feeding it to me. When I was a kid, you know what they had? He's stupid. That one's stupid. Can't sit still at all. No, put him in the hallway. He's disturbing everyone. <laughs> Every single report card I ever got, there was a U. Did you guys have U's on your report cards growing up? There was a U next to disturbs others. <laughs> everyone I got. How many had this the, the parent-teacher conference? Kurt is a really b- smart boy if he'd just apply himself. Do <laughs> so you know? Listen to me. Listen to me, my friends. Listen to me. By fourth grade, I was defined as stupid. They told me I would never be able to write clearly because I was such a horrible speller. I told them bad spellers, you untie. Three of you got that. Three of you got that. They said, you're such a horrible speller, he'll never never pass an English class. I've been published in like four national magazines. They told me I would never figure out math. They were right on that one. That was one they were right on. Do you know that the human brain, the frontal lobe, doesn't stop growing? Uh, in terms of its full development till you're 24, and that it's plastic enough, it's elastic enough to change your entire life. Did you know that the reason that they won't give you a motel room when you're too young or they won't give, rent a car to you when you're too young is because the statistics that you were gonna mess up that car or that hotel room proves that your brain wasn't fully intact. Your frontal lobe is discernment. There's faith and discernment. What is faith? That's risk-taking. What is discernment? That's knowing, don't do that. That will hurt and be expensive. This is the frontal lobe. This is the part. Don't let anyone damage this. This is really important. And especially in guys, you go through three different periods where there's massive growth in your frontal lobe. And most of you don't go through your biggest frontal lobe growth until you're after 17 years old. That's why girls at 16 go, These guys are all idiots. You know why they say that, girls? Because they are all idiots at that age. But don't give up on them. Their brain is literally, I'm going to say it again, they're brain damaged. And some of you have accepted an identity of who you are intellectually at age 11. Stop it. You can change. How do you change? It has to be grace. Here's the key question. What would happen if you believed God could change any circumstance? Here's Okay, I said willpower is the lowest form of power. You want to know the highest form of power? Highest form of power is grace power. What is grace power? Um, um, what's your name again, bro? Yeah. O'Shea. Say, O'Shea and I are walking down the street. I got my earbuds in. He's got his earbuds in. We're both listening to some music. We're walking on campus. What campus you go to, O'Shea? University of Memphis. It's a little. There, you can get some music at University of Memphis, right? So I'm walking down. I'm listening to my music. You're listening to your music. I have my music at a particularly too high volume level for walking in traffic. You have your music at a particularly appropriate volume level. What music are you listening to, O'Shea? What are you listening to? Yeah, yourself. Yourself. He's listening to his new album. It's about to drop. Okay? that's I can respect that. I'm listening to Keith Green. Why? Because I'm born again. I'm listening to Keith. If you don't know who Keith Green is, I question your salvation. So we're walking down the street, me and O'Shea, and all, we're crossing, and all of a sudden... A ginormous cafeteria food truck is coming around the corner, and it's, it's going too fast, and it's going to run over both O'Shea and I, and in a minute, I don't even see it. I don't hear it because it got my music too loud. O'Shea, at the last second, realizes that we're going to get hit. He's got a choice. He's got, he can do one of two things. He can either jump out of the way and watch me die, or he can push me out of the way and get hit himself. And he can't do either one of those two things. At the last possible second, O'Shea pushes me out of the way and takes the death for me. Now, let me ask you this question. O'Shea, what's your mom's name? Let's say Kim calls me up a month after the funeral. And she says, Pastor Kurt, I need you to do something for me. What do I say to her? Absolutely yes. Let's say she calls me up a year after the funeral. Says, Kurt, I need you to do something. What do I say to her? What is it? What if she calls me up 10 years after the funeral? Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Who said yes, ma'am? It's yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. In fact, I'm not letting her call me. I'm calling her. Saying, what do you need? What do you want me to do? I owe my life to your son. I deserve to die, and your son stepped in the way of death for me. I owe a debt of gratitude so profound and so deep. Every breath I take, I would not now have had he not been a selfless person who not being of blame himself wanted me to live. You know that gratitude? It creates a power in you to do things that are not easy to do. That is holiness. Holiness. The Bible says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness even in this age. The grace of God is the debt of gratitude I owe to God for all he's done for me. And when I'm mindful of what I have done that I shouldn't have done and what has been forgiven and how I was released into life, that grace day by day, moment by moment, long term, is a teacher in my head, in my heart that says, Kurt, you should have been dead, but you're alive for a purpose. Because Jesus took the death for you. That's so much more powerful than I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't do it, which is willpower. You get that, you get the Bible. Okay, we gotta move on. Anyone else wanna move on? All right. We're obsessed with time. We're obsessed with time. We're totally obsessed with time. You don't believe me? Anyone believe me? How many here feel too busy all the time? How many here feel unprepared most of the time? Thank you for your honesty. Listen to this, just listen to our culture. We send packages by Federal Express. We eat Panda Express. We buy it with American Express. We get our meds from Express Scripts. We want those meds to be fast acting. We need those meds because we eat fast food. And all of us are gonna be dieting in January by drinking Slim Fast. We want a career on the fast track. On our DVRs, we use the fast forward. We go to Disneyland, Disney World. What do we want? What do you, that's right. We drive to Disney World in the fast lane. While we're talking on our phone that we bought at Sprint, we wear Speedos. Don't wear Speedos. Don't wear Speedos. We meet through speed dating. We have a meeting to get up to speed. We drink instant soup and instant noodles and instant cocoa. We love instant messaging. We hate instant replay. But we love it. We post all of our life on Instagram. We change our old Jiffy Lube, our Speedy Lube, our Quick Lube. We manage our finances through Quicken. We, give, uh, we, we gas up at the quick stop. We say about each other, that hey, that is a quick study. They're quick-witted. They're quick off the mark, and they sure are quick. They are sure to make a quick buck. Everything's quick. And what do we say to each other? Get a move on. Hurry up. Hurry up. You're in the room with your roommate that's curling her hair too much. And you're like, worship's starting. Come on, get a move on. Get a move on. Get a move on. This elevator's gonna be crowded. Let's go. Get a move on. And why do we say to get a move on? Because we are constantly wanting to beat the rush. What if we figured out that the rush is beating us? So, number one, I can't change. You can change by the grace of God. Number two, lame mindset is now is not the right time. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. I'm too busy. God, would you please come back when it settles down? The biggest lie you can ever tell yourself is it's gonna settle down after this. The Pharisees wanted the Messiah to come, but when he came, they said, listen, you're not doing it in the timing and the order and the right way. We, Hey, listen, we have a no healing rule just for Friday night to Saturday night. You can heal all you want on Monday. Why do you wanna come and do all your healings on the Sabbath? When we say to God, I can't, it almost always means I won't we say the Bible can only be taught this way You gotta teach the Bible verse by verse you ever hear that how many have heard you gotta teach the Bible verse by verse I like it as a concept but you wanna know what the first 500 years of Christianity they didn't have the verses you gotta teach the Bible truth by truth worship should always be like this only three songs the first song should be up the second song should be down. The third song should be down, but go back up. Because everyone knows the announcements are boring. When you go into the announcements, it's gotta be up. The church should be only this size. I know some major national preacher going around preaching that only churches should happen in homes. Only churches should happen in homes. This is such do you know where you know where churches, you know where you know where churches should happen? You know where churches should happen? Everywhere. I can't, you name a place, and I'm like, let's put a church in there. You say, Kurt, will you put a church in a strip club? (laughs) Yes. During the day. God, your timing is inconvenient for us. Here's the key idea. No, no, before I get the key idea, think about this guy. Okay, think about this guy. Think about this guy. He's lame in his body. He believes a superstition, and he wants someone to take his paralyzed body and drop it in a pool. We get so stupid with our diseases. This is the stupidest thing you could do. Have you ever met someone who's paralyzed? I'm going to tell you, the last thing I'm doing with my paralyzed friends is putting them in my pool. But he's hanging around going, I'm not looking for God. I don't want God to interrupt me. I want an angel that I want to beat the other sick people so I can get in a pool and drown. Instead of, here I am anytime, any way you want, God. Here I am anytime, any way you want, God. Key idea, religious objections are always louder than faith opportunities. You know, I think God sends evangelists and prophets into our midst And they start winning people to the Lord and our leaders get angry. And they usually do it because they have rough spots on them. Man, this one kid came into my campus. He started doing a Bible study that wasn't in our Bible study system. And he had 35 kids in the basement of Castle Warner. My leaders all came and said, he's teaching heresy. And he was. He was totally teaching heresy. (laughs) He totally teaching some stuff down in the Bible. And they're like, let's crucify him. I'm like, first of all, this is illegal. Second of all, this is the most talented leader I've seen in like four years. He got 30, none of you got 35 in your small group. I said, what if instead of crucifying him, we won him over with love and trod him good doctrine? He ended up being one of the best leaders ever in our ministry. Because we didn't get upset that God brought this confrontation to our system. Here's the key question. Are you open to God answering your prayers in a way you don't expect? Are you looking for the evangelist? Are you looking for the prophet? Are you looking for the healing? And it's not there. Okay, last thing, and I want the band to come up. I'm going too long because you guys are way too fun to talk to. Can I just say, can, I, can we just give a round of applause to all your campus pastors and interns? of yeah. I go to some places, and honestly, I go to some places, and, um, and it's hard to speak there. You guys are so awesome, and it's been such a joy and a privilege. I honestly, I mean that very sincerely, soft hearts. Uh, number one lame mindset is what? Let's say it together. Number one lame mindset is, I can't change. Come on, say it with me. One, two, three. Number two mindset is? That was pretty good. Let's try it again. Number two mindset is? And number three is? Jesus isn't working. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many people tell me that God is not answering their prayers. That God is not moving in their life. I've never felt God. I prayed and he did nothing. Look at what, the, what it says. In, my, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work. Do you believe that? My father is always at work. Um, we, we, I'm a dog family. I like dogs. Anyone else here like dogs? Yeah, we need keyboards behind the dogs cuz this is going to be a dog death story. It's sentimental. So the breed that we have had like four of is old English sheepdog. Anyone here have all it's like the Disney dog, the old English sheepdog from Little Mermaid? It's oh they're so they they have such high IQs. You got to spell around them. Of course. We're going on a trip. You can't say the word And the last one we had, her name was Lucy. I got a picture of her. Here's Lucy. That's Lucy at the end. And we got them all as rescues. By the way, by the way, girls, you look around now. Any guy that's paying attention to this story, that's a worthy guy. You want to marry a dog-loving guy. And so, so anyway, we always got these dogs as rescues because they're really expensive and we don't spend money on, on dogs, expensive dogs. That's not us, but... So we get them as rescues. And so when we get them, they're already like four or five years old sometimes, and I only live to eight or nine. So you have them for like four years, and they're just like, they're total, am I wrong about this, Steve? They're total members of the family when you have a dog you really love. And uh, dogs are good, Steve's a good dog trainer, I know that about him. And um, the last one when she died, when Lucy died, I said to my kids, that is it, that's it. I can't do this. I cannot lose a family member every four years. I'm done. Plus, we are moving to get closer to the church where I'm working at, Bayside, and and we had a smaller backyard, and I'm like, the the poops are too big, and and it's too hard on my heart. And my youngest, Emma, she's like, Dad, you can't be serious. We need a dog in our life. And after about two weeks of me pouting about no dogs, my wife comes to me, and she's like, you can't be serious. We're going to have a dog. I said, okay, we're going to get a dog, but I only have three requests. Quest number one is I want to be a small dog that lives many, many years, many years. I never thought I'd be a small dog person, but I want a longer living dog, and I want smaller poops. Can I just? And number three, we're close enough. Thank you, Chuck. I'm glad you like that. Number three, we're close enough to Christmas. You got to keep the fact that we're getting a dog completely secret from Emma because I want it to be a surprise. So we're going up to Christmas, and... um, we find this. My wife finds this little dog. The little dog's named Mickey. This is my dog, Mickey. And um, yeah, <laughs> It's a tall old lady dog, isn't it? <laughs> Mickey is the most. He is the most uh, depressed and non-foofy white dog you've ever heard. It's like he's like a grumpy old man. Get off our lawn. <laughs> so we get Mickey. And Mickey's staying at Jack and Renee Hammond's house, so Emma doesn't know. And Emma's dropping these major hints all Thanksgiving and Christmas. She's like, man, I'm telling you what, a lot of people without dogs grow up seriously depressed. (laughs) I read a report in Psychology Today. You know, she's like... She's reading us all these things. So we go to the Christmas services at Bayside, and we have, like, all these tons of Christmas services, and they're so fun, and people are getting saved. It's just it's the greatest thing ever. And we're just going and running, and we get done with the last Christmas service, and we get back to the house. It's, like, 1 a.m. in the morning. We sit down on the couch, and everyone, it's, all, the whole family's happy. Everyone's like, it's Christmas tomorrow. The Christmas services are over. That was amazing. Wasn't that fun tonight? And we're sitting on the couch in the afterglow, and Emma just starts crying. <laughs> I said, baby, what's wrong? And she said, I know there's no dog because I looked everywhere. And my wife is giving me this look, like, okay, let's tell her. And I was like, no. I said, you're right, baby, there's no dog. Let your children suffer a little. It's good for them. It's good for them. I'm not being joking. She pouts up to bed gets into bed and in the master bath in the master closet in a box (laughs) get up early next morning put the little box on the stairs put the little bow Emma comes out of her room she's all upset (laughs) she looks at the box and I looked at her and I said you thought your daddy forgot My friends, your daddy never forgets. He's got a timing. He's got a purpose. It's not going to be the size you want. Sometimes it'll be smaller and sometimes it'll be bigger, but it'll be the size you need. You want to see a happy little girl? This is a happy little girl right there. She's choking that dog to death. Stand to your feet. Listen to me. If you're still taking notes, write this last sentence in. Here's the key. The problem is not God's working. It's our watching. God's at work, my friends. Here's what Jesus wants to say. I'm going to interrupt your life when you least expect it, when you do not want it, with the stuff you need the most. I'm going to make you crawl out onto a diving board. That's where I'm going to speak to you. My only plea to you is to be open to the interruption of God. Let him be sovereign. Leave this place wide open and live your life. Say, God, I believe. I can't change me, but you can. And I'm going to let you do it in the timing and the way you want. Because my commitment is this. You are always at work when you ask me, do I want to be healed? My only answer will be yes and amen. If you want God to touch you in your life right now, if you want to experience the healing that you need, it could be for your heart, your head, or your history. If you want God to touch your life, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar. We're going to sing some worship songs. We're going to pray one for another. We're going to lay hands on everything that moves. If you want God to move, don't stay a moment in your seat. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to prep the, prime the pump a little bit. We're going to ask the worship team to sing one song, and we're going to re-enter into worship, and then at some point, we're going to start laying hands on each other. Are you guys up for that plan? Is that plan work? Worship team, can you do that? All right, let's do this.
1: speak hundred billion failures disappear where you lost your life so I could find it here yeah. if you left the grave behind you so alive I could see your heart in everything you've done Every part designed in a work of art called love If you gladly chose surrender, so will I I can see your heart in different ways Every precious wine, a child you died to
2: To so The so For to you so It's right.
1: Send it so alive. The rocks cry out in silence, so alive. The sun of all high still falls shine. We'll sing again a hundred billion times. the glory yours is the Name. A, powerful name, a powerful name, a powerful name oh Christ my King, what a powerful name it is, nothing can stand against, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus.
0: Down when they're singing. Smart. Okay, here's my question to you. Turn the house lights up just a little so I can see people. Um, by the way, do we have? It's great to be emotional in worship. Amen. amen. Do we need to be emotional for God to heal? No. no. Do we? Can lights be up for God to heal? Yes. Can God heal when lights are down? Yes. Can God heal in your hotel room later? Yep. Yeah. Can God heal in a car on the way home? Be open to the interruption of God. Amen? Yep. Let's make this altar call last a year. Amen? All right. I need a healing. Raise your hand. I need a healing. Could be in your head. I'm not asking for everyone. I'm like, you've been struggling with something where you need a healing. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, it could be in your head, could be in your history, could be in your body. I need a healing. Put your hand up high. All right, now find someone that's got a hand laid on them. Leaders, be discerning here for me, would you? Um, You know what? I don't really, God doesn't use me in physical healings that much. Every once in a while it happens because I think God's grace is not limited by what my giftings are. But I just want to encourage you. Open yourself up right now that God could use you. It's not, it's a gift of grace, the healing, right? It's not your fine and fancy words. It's not our singing or preaching. It's what Jesus did on the cross. So let faith rise up in your heart right now. You got someone you're laying hands on? I'm, paying, I'm talking to the prayerers right now. Amen? Is everyone that's got a hand raised got someone laying hands on them? If you don't, if you don't got someone laying hands on you, open your eyes and look at someone awkwardly and go, why aren't you praying for me? There's someone in here, and I have been repeating the word anxiety in every one of my messages, and I've been repeating it for you. And I want to tell you two things that God's saying to me. God is proud of you for the battle you're fighting. God is proud of you. You're afraid to ask for prayer because you think that asking for prayer is admitting shame. Anxiety is not a shame. You know what anxiety is? It's a normal, natural response to the brokenness of this world. I'm not looking at people dealing with anxiety and thinking that they're flawed. I'm looking at those of us that got joy and saying, man, you're weird. This place is broken. Amen? Amen. But even though it's broken, God doesn't want you to walk in that anxiety. He wants you to walk in peace above and beyond your circumstances. And I want to tell you, there's no shame in receiving counseling. There's no shame in uh, using medication. And there's no shame in asking for prayer. And I'm just believing God might interrupt someone's anxiety tonight. Someone got faith for that? Amen? I think God wants to keep your generation afraid. Because if you weren't afraid, wow. Wow what you could do. All right. Let's pray for healing right now. Go ahead and just, you just pray the words that God gives you for the person you got hands on. They don't have to be wise or persuasive words. They're words that appeal to the grace of God. Right now, just let faith rise up in your heart and pray for healing for someone. God, we love you. God, you're good. It's not by might. It's not by my wise or persuasive words. God. It's by a demonstration of your grace. Lord Jesus, by the grace of God, give peace beyond understanding to those battling with anxiety, God, in the name of Jesus, the peace of God, the peace of God, God, the significance and security of God, Lord Jesus the knowing that your sovereignty is above and beyond all the brokenness of this world. In the name of Jesus, for those with a generalized anxiety, God, for those with acute anxiety, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we ask for our brothers and sisters, breakthrough, breakthrough. God, we pray for those that need healing in their history something traumatic has happened to them. A shameful failure haunts them. God, I pray that you would speak to them so clearly that where there was failure and sin and death, you now give grace that there's nothing they can do to make you stop loving them because there was nothing you did, they did to make you start loving them. God, let the forgiveness seep deep into the bone marrow of their life. Let them walk in freedom broken children healed by a loving God. Let the grace of God teach them, God, how much you love them. God, not that they would be committed to you, but that they would know how committed you are to them. And Lord, we pray for those that need healing in their body. We come against every abnormal cell. Every cell that's a manifestation of the brokenness of this world. Everything that would call itself cancer. God, you are the giver of years. You're a good father who gives good gifts to your children who ask. We don't understand your timing or your ways, but we submit to your goodness. And we say, God, you give us You give us what good fathers would give their children. Touch us, God. Touch us, Jesus.